Have you worked out how to really grow your business? If you take any successful startup and look backwards, you'll see that 90% of their growth came from 10% of the stuff they tried. Figuring out how to grow a new company is probably the toughest thing to do in business. So, we're speaking with one of the best growth people I know, Matt Lerner. He spent 11 years at PayPal, was a VC, and is now a growth advisor. You want to move from being confident you're right to confident you can figure it out. In this episode, you'll learn how to hire the best growth people because most people get it wrong and end up having to fire them. How to figure out your North Star when there are competing metrics. How to prioritize which growth experiments to run and no, it's not the usual frameworks. And why so many smart people get growth wrong despite knowing what to do. It's not lack of knowledge that lets people down. No, no, it's something else. So I talk about this idea of growth levers. If you take any successful startup and look backwards, you'll see that 90% of their growth came from 10% of the stuff they tried. It was certainly true at PayPal. I'm sure your listeners know all the case studies about Airbnb. and. Let's know. assume they don't know uh, the PayPal <laughs> eBay one. Share it. All right. So the very first, and this is long before I got to PayPal. But you'll claim it. Uh, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> so the original idea of PayPal was you could beam money from one Palm Pilot to another. If probably people you listeners don't even know what a Palm Pilot is, but back in the 90s, this was like a personal calendar device. Obviously, there are no Palm Pilots, so this was no business. They figured that out pretty quickly. And they came back and said, okay, we have this product that could send money around. Let's find a use case. And they brainstormed 50 use cases and started investigating them. And at some point, one of, the, uh, one of the analysts on the team came back and said, hey, there's these people using it. I'm reading the comments that are going along with the money flows here, because you send comments with your money. And people are mentioning this thing, eBay. And they checked it out. And it was like a garage sale. Like, you know, and, they were, and these guys went to Stanford. They were a bit fancy pants. They were like, this isn't really for us. And then the next day, he came in and he said, listen, I know that it was like 43 people we found. He said, I know there's only 43 of them, but that number is doubling every week. <laughs> now, in, in startups, you know, or in pandemics or anything, like doubling every week. So that just, Jay, like, that was it. So we're in the eBay business. So the engineers wrote a script, they figured out it was a chicken and egg problem that would pretend to be a buyer and it would go and it would, mess, it would bid on items on eBay and it would message the sellers and say, hey, and, you know, I bid on your item because you could only message a seller if you bid on the item and said, I would prefer to pay you with PayPal instead of mailing you money. You know, are you okay with that? And then it would give them a link to open a PayPal account. So the sellers then thought their buyers wanted to pay with PayPal. So the sellers all signed up for PayPal and far preferred it to having to wait for checks and cash to come in the mail. Americans still use checks to this day. Um, so all the sellers added it, all the buyers preferred it, and it was a vicious cycle and they got onto eBay. Eventually eBay ended up, they IPO'd and eBay ended up having to buy them back off the public markets for I think close to $2 billion. So that's the original story. <laughs> okay, that's the original story. Take us back to where it has relevance for what you do. So if you assume as a premise that whatever your company does, 90% of your results are going to end up coming from 10% of the stuff, then your job right now is to find that 10% as quickly as possible. And however much runway, 12, 18, 24 months you've got, your chance of success depends on the pace and quality of learning. And does that mean that you should be trying 100 things? Yeah, but you need to try the right 100 things. That's the other problem. You need to be systematic in the search. You can't brute force this. So the first thing we're going to do, I'll give you the high level. The first thing we'll do is map the growth model and find points of leverage in the business 
where they can focus for maximum impact. Um, second thing we're going to do is we're going to study the customers and get all the insights we need about, you know, they're not, they don't know your product exists. They're not out looking for it, but they have this problem. So where are they looking? What do they think they're looking for? And that'll give us ideas. Then we'll have 100 ideas. And the idea is to test them as quickly as possible. So we'll run these experiment-driven growth sprints. And ultimately, as you're running these experiments, you're going to find some stuff that doesn't work. And that's great, because that crosses ideas or entire avenues off the list. And you're going to find things that do work, and you're going to learn and double down on them. So that's the process kind of writ large. OK, sounds nice. Um, I guess audience and secret leaders is, is, you know, is mixed across the whole array of entrepreneurship. So taking the insight of the audience voice. Say I'm an early stage startup. Say I maybe don't even have my pre-seed funding yet. You know, how am I going to do this? Like, how big is the team? Can I do this as a one, a solo founder? Like, I guess when I'm hearing you talk about this stuff, I think, oh, it's brilliant at heights. You know, we have funding, we have a team, we have all of this stuff, you know, we have a process, like we can do this. Um, and we do do this, as you know. Um, sometimes you hear this stuff as a earlier stage fund, uh, founder and you're a bit like, you know, it sounds great, but how could I possibly do it? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything about this that a founder couldn't do. It's just a question of how they choose to allocate and prioritize their time. You, you're doing all the, the same amount of work you'd be doing anyways. You're just being smarter about it, right? As a solo founder, you still want to figure out what's your North Star metric. You still want to have a handle on the business metrics. You're still going to be listening to customers hopefully every day. You're still going to be extracting insights from that, and you're still going to be trying stuff. I think the biggest break from that, the biggest unlock in terms of efficiency, is the idea of like running growth sprints and doing minimum viable tests. What is a minimum viable test? I've heard of MVP, minimum viable product. What's this? What's an MVT? So you're a solo founder. You have extremely limited time and resources. You have an idea about a thing that would be hard. You'd have to hire people, spend money, build a feature. You say, what's the fastest way I can test that without having to do all the work? So the first thing you do is you take the idea and you break it down. And you say, what are my riskiest assumptions? And what's the quickest way I can test just that assumption? So if you're, maybe your risky assumption is, does anyone want to buy this? So, um, you know, I worked with a guy, I can't remember his last name, um, his name's Tom, and he had an idea basically to have like Airbnb for remote working in nice places in other countries. And one of his investors had like a vacation home in, in the Loire Valley or something that he wasn't using anyways. So they just listed it on the site and then he put a bunch of other fake houses on there, made a little marketplace site, started buying ads and sending traffic to it. And he rented out his VC's house in like two days for almost no money. So he validated the idea. Um, or maybe it's just a feature build. So we worked with a team um, and they had like a, a B2B learning app. So like Duolingo for professional skills. And of course, with any learning app, the key is getting people to turn it into a habit. So they were thinking maybe we should pu build push notifications. But, you know, it was early. It was just the two co-founders and the technical co-founder had too much on his roadmap. So they said, all right, let's see if it's worth doing. So they downloaded a list of all the new signups. They randomly divided it into a test and control group. And the two co-founders spent the weekend sending WhatsApp messages to the test group saying, hey, don't forget to log into the app and do your exercises. And by Monday, 
those people had logged in like 450% more than the control group. And those people had stayed active for the subsequent two weeks at a much higher rate. So it's okay, now we know we need to build push notifications feature. So whatever the idea you have is, what's the risky assumption and what's the quickest way we can just test that thing? You also talked about North Star metric. Yeah. How does someone find a North Star metric? What is it as well? So the idea of a North Star metric is this is the ultimate measure that tells you if your business is doing what it needs to do for your stakeholders, first and foremost for your customers, but obviously also for your employees and your shareholders. And I think the mistake people make is they're like, well, we're a business, we're supposed to make money, so obviously our North Star metric is revenue, or our North Star metric is profit. And the problem is that that just gives too many degrees of freedom. There's lots of ways in a business to make revenue and profit without delivering extra value to your customers. And that's fine if you're trying to run a lifestyle business, a cash flow business, you know, you're, you're trying to improve the profitability of a private equity turnaround. But if you're trying to just get exponential growth for a startup, you have to deliver outsized value to your customers. And so you need a North Star metric that really first and foremost tracks value delivered to customers. Yeah, okay. So I think just using the example at Heights, yeah. um, we've had 68,500 customers. Well done. Um, but our North Star metric is monthly active subscribers, of which we have about 25,000. Okay. And there's a very different way to think about things because every time we get a customer, it's sort of irrelevant unless we're looking at the whole picture with retention, keeping them active, are they upgrading to another subscription, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And that's the difference between having a revenue goal or having um, subscribers versus what would sound to the layman a very simple, uh, it would sound like the same thing, monthly active subscribers, subscribers, you might think it's the same thing. It's actually a third of the number, right? It's a much smaller That's amount exactly of right. customers, but it focuses your attention because we would love to have 68,000 monthly active customers. That would be a lot better for our business. So it's like, um, it, it helps us focus our attention and energy on how do we create the activities that get us to a bigger monthly active subscription number. That's exactly right. Someone might buy your product, try it once, chuck it in the bin. Technically, they're a subscriber because they paid you for a month. Obviously, they're not getting value. They're not going to be part of the long-term success of your business. So I ask founders, if your customers absolutely loved your product, how would they naturally behave? And how many of them are behaving like this? And you might find in your data that anyone who stays active for three months has a very high retention rate. Uh, and so your goal is to get kind of new signups to that third month. And if people aren't getting there, to understand why. So, You also just mentioned being where your customers need you most. Um, at Heights, D2C, we probably should do pharmacies and retail, but we don't. And so that's not that helpful. However, in your excellent book, Growth Levers by... Matt Lerner, don't let me cover his, don't let me cover his, <laughs> his name. Um, so in your excellent book, Growth Levers, you have a really, you have a bunch of good anecdotes, but you have one thing in particular, and it's something that you just mentioned here. So I thought it was a good time to bring it up. Um, be where your customers are. At Heights, we're D2C. So we should probably be in pharmacies and retail and stuff, but we're not currently. And so we're probably failing quite badly on that. But you had a very niche example. Can you share it? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the locksmith. I assume that's what you're referring to. I'm referring to the locksmith. So actually, it's probably around 2005. I'd recently joined PayPal, and I lived in San Francisco in one of those gated apartment complexes where you like everyone has a key to the main gate, and it opens into a courtyard out to all the flats. And I came home one day, 
and there was a sticker on the gate. It said 24-hour emergency locksmith with a phone number. And I thought, this locksmith is a genius because he or she knows exactly where I'm going to be when I suddenly need a locksmith, right? If they had advertised on podcasts or on the side of a bus or whatever, you know, television, I wouldn't have remembered that. But I get home and someone's like squirted glue into my lock because people in San Francisco do that. I'm going to need a locksmith. I'll be right here. And for... Uh, sorry, I got to just say, now <laughs> I just think the locksmith is squirting glue in everyone's locks. Like <laughs> that's that, a growth hack. That's yeah, a growth hack. Go. Yeah. All right. For your next startup, maybe. It could be a glue lock squirting startup. Anyways, <laughs> direct to lock e-commerce. So, but the, it occurred to me then that I was going to PayPal at the same time. And what we were doing was inking partnerships with all the e-commerce platforms and the shopping carts and the early progenitors of Shopify to get pre-integrated so that whenever a new merchant set up their online store, PayPal would be a default payment option out of the box. And that was, you know, because no one wakes up and thinks, today I'm going to get payments, right? If you have a business, you wake up, I have this idea, let's see if I can buy the domain, let's get hosting, let's source product, let's set up a shopping cart. Oh, we're like step 11, right? Now we need payments. So for any customer, what you're trying to do when you're listening to them is not, why did you buy our product or how did you hear about us? Because that's the last step in like a 10-mile journey. The question is, you know, when did you first realize you wanted to do this thing you're trying to do? And what did you think you were looking for? And what were the first things you did? And where did you look? And who did you ask? And if you can figure that out, you can sort of jump in there before any of your competitors and find your customers, not just where they are, but at their moment of highest need. Okay, got it. So that's technically an approach, right? A lever. The book is called Growth Levers. What are the levers? What are the levers? Um, so the, the way I define a lever in the book is this 10% of actions that brings you 90% of your results. There's a potentially infinite number of levers. The key is to find them as quickly as you can. So, you know, there's a million locksmiths. They've been operating for 200 years till someone finally found this one, right? But I don't know how much runway you have. Probably not that much. Um, Slack took five years or, or six years, something like that. Notion took 10 years. So the trick is how do you find them really quickly? And that's the process. So you map your growth model, identify you know, your North Star, and then to drive your North Star, like where's the rate limiting step? Where's the bottleneck in there? First, just focus on that, because if it's not the bottleneck, it's not going to be your big growth lever. And then the next thing is to understand, listen to your customers. Well, find what, does, what does that mean, sorry? If it's not the bottleneck, that's not going to be the lever. So you may be, you've got a supply chain you know, in your business now, have you heard of the theory of constraints, Ellie Goldratt? So even if I had time okay. audience. All right. So it's an operations management idea from the 80s that in any system with throughput, there's a bottleneck somewhere. It's the narrowest point. And if you focus resources on any other part of the system, you're not going to increase throughput because it's limited by that bottleneck. And if you apply resources to the bottleneck, the entire business runs faster. Speaking of 1980s management guru chat around bottlenecks, <laughs> seeing as we're in a deep niche right we now. We were, yeah. Yeah. Pete Drucker famously says, if you're not sure where the bottleneck is, it's you. Oh, I love that. That's I haven't good, heard right? that. Yeah. So the same thing is true in a SaaS business in anything. If you've got 95% of the people who are signing up for your product are not using it in week three, you don't need to buy more ads. <laughs> you don't need to add more product features. You need to solve activation, right? So somewhere in your business, there's a bottleneck. And if you don't know what it is, find it, or maybe it's you, because <laughs> you haven't found it yet, um, and focus on that. So that's the first clue to finding your growth levers. The second piece is to go listen to your customers, 
understand their journey and find that locksmith moment. So what does our product enable you to do? Interesting. When did you first realize you needed to do that? Where did you look? What was the first thing you tried? Where did you go? So you're not asking about your products or how you heard about us. You're really trying to understand where that journey started. And then you'll get lots of ideas. And then after that, what you need to do is test them as quickly as possible using that minimum viable test approach that we talked about. Do you think this stuff is different between consumer companies and B2B? I don't think the approach is different at all. There are you know, factors that are different. So for example, in B2B, stakeholders matter a lot more. In consumer, the stakeholder might be, you know, your wife or your kids or what will my mates think. But in business, you're really, you know, your reputation is pretty important. Someone's going to have to sign up on the budget. Someone from IT is going to have to do blah, blah, blah. So I'm exploring a lot more when I'm talking to customers, not just about you, but like who else in the company cared about this outcome? And, you know, how is this going to affect the way your team is seen in the company and sort of things like that. Okay. So when you take people through the cohorts and when you're writing in the book, you don't actually think there's like a big distinctive difference between the two? Fundamentally, they use absolutely the same approach. I mean, if you go back to the early days of any successful B2B or B2C company, you'll see a process like this. So you've talked through the different growth levers. You talked about the rate limiting stat. We've identified bottlenecks and stuff. What are the levers? Like, How do we actually give, give some examples? Like, what are we practically talking about here? All right. Yeah, that, that would help for everyone. So there's a company, have you heard of Popsa? I've not. It's a photo book. Is that, does that mean you've done UK. your job badly? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. They're doing quite well. They have okay. um, pretty strong recurring revenue. Um, but this was, so it's a photo book making app. And they were in the app store and it said fast, easy photo books. And they, honestly, they just weren't, sales weren't anywhere near where they needed to be. So we studied their customers. And what we found was the rate limiting step, first of all, mathematically was kind of visiting the app store to install rate. And when we talked to customers, we found that people were just completely inured to the entire product category, the entire category of photo books. Because if you've ever used photo book making software, it's notoriously tedious. Mm -hmm. People love photo books, they hate making them. And when people said, saw fast, easy photo books, they called bullshit. They were like, yeah, that's, I, I've done this three different times, it's not. So they just changed a little strap line under the product name in the app store listing from fast, easy photo books to photo books in five minutes. And people still didn't believe them, but they were like, well, for five minutes, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Anyways, they made that change and overnight they quadrupled their install rate. And those installs had really good activation and retention. So that's an example. And they've been steadily growing ever since. They haven't taken money a long time. They haven't needed to. It's a really strong business. Another one, you know um, Misha from FatMap? I do. So FatMap, for your listeners, it's like a 3D terrain map for backcountry skiers, you know, other adventure sports where Google Maps like just isn't cutting it. And just got bought by Strava. And they were just acquired by Strava. Yeah, congratulations to those guys. So when we worked with them, what we found is when they interviewed their customers, that most searches for trail maps started on Google. And they already had this database of 100,000 different peace and trails and, you know, backcountry, this and that. And so they, they made all those pages, all that content available to Google and indexable and unlock this massive long tail search opportunity to the point where they were getting 80,000 high intent signups a month, or maybe with visitors a month, off of the back of this long tail search volume from this insight of like, hey, our locksmith moment is someone, you know, Googling back way up to Pike's Peak. So you talk a lot about mapping a growth model, and we just talked about maps as well, so this is the appropriate time to discuss it. What does that mean? 
All right. So we've talked about the North Star and we've talked about the rate limiting step. And so how do we connect those two into a single model? So the way you would map your growth model, you start with your North Star metric, how, you know, in your case, monthly active subscribers. And then you just sort of work backwards. What are all the drivers that move that? So the first order drivers, I'm guessing for you, are going to be sign up and then do they actually use the product and then do they retain? And then what brings you a sign up? Well, someone who has visited our site and converts and what, what brings someone to your site and what brings a high quality prospect to your site and what is a profitable way to bring a high quality prospect. So you just sort of draw a tree diagram that works all the way back to a customer who's never heard of you. Then you fill in numbers for all of those. So I usually do like a flowchart diagram and I'll have the boxes be absolute numbers like actives or churners or referrers. And then the arrows will represent the ratios between the two. So visit to sign up conversion rate. So you draw the flowchart, you fill in data for all of those. And at that point, when you look at it, the bottleneck is often pretty obvious. You're like, hey, compared to DTC industry, like this conversion rate is terrible. Or, um, and it's this number that like, if you double or triple it, the whole business will double or triple. So if only 10% of your traffic comes from SEO, there's no way that SEO is your bottleneck because you know, if you double it, it's still only 20% of your traffic, right? Anyway, so that's how you would map your growth model and then find your rate limiting step in there. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay. Hiring a team. So all of this sounds great. And obviously a lot of founders go through this process with you and founders and marketers will read the book. We'll read the book. Um, 
And the next question will be, how do I actually create the structure around me to make this work? And sometimes the stuff is actually sort of easier when you are your little one man band doing your experiments and doing your things. However, needing to delegate, needing to create the system, needing these things to scale as they do, like how does that actual team setup look? And is that different for different um, consumer or business or B2B? Um, so remember I, in the beginning, I said I saw a few patterns of failure. I saw, sorry, I saw a lot of founders making the same avoidable mistakes over and over again. And I think messing up hiring is probably the top of that list. So the first thing you need to figure out, ahead of growth is not ahead of marketing. If you read you know, the stories I've just told you or any of these case studies, you're going to see that successful growth levers cut, often cut across engineering, product, there is some marketing, sales, customer service, compliance, onboarding, user experience design, it's all over the place. So your head of growth is going to be a person who's got their fingers in all of these pies. The second thing is your head of growth has to be incredibly brilliant because it's very hard to figure these things out. Third, they have to be an expert in all of your data in this growth model. Fourth, they have to be an expert in your customers. Uh, and fifth, if they're going to be any good and they're going to want to stick around, they're going to need to have a lot of upside incentive. So if I just describe the smartest person in your business who can control all the resources, understands the customers, understands the data, and has the most upside. Sounds like it's the founder. Sounds an awful lot like a founder. Except for the being brilliant. Uh, I think, well, <laughs> that British humility. I think founders do tend to be extraordinarily bright people. And the thing, I guess, this is a bit of a tangent, but that contrasts sort of a founder brilliant with sort of brilliant in other careers, is founder brilliant are really good at figuring things out as opposed to like getting A's on tests. Mm. And I think it's a different, very useful kind of brilliant. Anyways, so I do think for any startup, your first head of growth is your founder is figuring these things out. Now, when it comes time to hire, the main thing is you have to be honest with yourself. Have you found a lever yet or not? Or are you hiring a playbook writer or a playbook runner? Now, if you're hiring from big established companies, marketers, growth people in big companies get promoted for doing all the things and doing them well and not making mistakes and managing bigger budgets and project management, first and foremost, they're executors. They're not gonna say, hey, let's not do 90% of this stuff. They're gonna say, hey, you told me to do it, let's do it. If you need to hire a playbook writer, you're hiring someone who's gonna come in and figure out how to grow your business, it's a very different profile. And so the first thing is just being honest and acknowledging that. If you're hiring a playbook runner, you've got a channel, you've got a lever, you've got something that's working really well and your weight limiting step is we can't do this fast enough. We need more people. If you're still trying to figure it out, playbook writers, I mean, we can talk about how to hire them, but the main thing I'm looking for, they, they often don't come from growth or marketing backgrounds at all. They tend to be bright generalists and problem solvers and people who can figure things out. So if I'm sitting in an interview right now and you're my hiring manager and I'm going for a head of growth role at System, what are the questions you're asking me to flush out whether I'm capable of doing this job or not? So I'm trying to figure out not what you've done, but what you can figure out. Do you think you have all the answers? So I'm going to ask you things. Um, how, how does this job fit into your learning plan? What are you hoping to learn in this job? Has this person even thought about their next job as something other than a paycheck? Is learning even important to them? Tell me about a mistake you made and what you learned from it. Are they comfortable talking about their mistakes? Have they reflected on them and actually taken lessons from them? Um, what do you see as the big open questions that you'll need to figure out coming into this role? 
Do they think they have all the answers or not? Have they given thought to some of the things they need to figure out? Even just like, do you have any questions for me? Like literally, are they curious? <laughs> so, so for me, it's much more about like, do they acknowledge the stuff they don't know? And do they have a good sense that there's going to be a lot of learning and experimentation here? And are there like specific questions that you think are just brilliant for flushing out those kind of things? Because I suppose, it, you know, my concern when you, this is, okay, interestingly, I've hired a lot of people. And when you said some of these questions back to me, I was like, God, I actually know the answer to that. And yet on the spot, I might freeze. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you know, what's like a big mistake you've made or whatever. I mean, I've asked that question to thousands of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, however, on the spot, I can see it's quite difficult. You'd be uh -huh. like, oh God, I'm in a pre high pressured interview situation and I want this head of growth role and I want to do growth at this startup. Um, as a hiring manager, what is your approach on like, what are the cues and things you're looking for behaviorally from the person? Like, for example, is it a red flag if they just come back with a perfect answer or do you actually want them to sit and think? That's exactly the right question to ask me right now. You're, you're exactly right. Um, because how they answer it, how they react to being put in that situation tells you everything you need to know. You may not have a failure teed up because you didn't know that was going to be an interview question. But does the thought of talking about failure in an interview frighten you? Do you get defensive? You know, everyone's got a story teed up about like, tell me about your weakness. Do you, you know, do you give me the, the bullshit answer, scripted answer to a different question? Or do you stop and think through it and come up with and remember a mistake you've made? And then you also know what you've learned from it because you already thought about that when the mistake happened. So, so much of what you're looking for is not the answer, but how they think about it, how they react to it. And you can learn a lot by someone by like, what do they consider a mistake? Some people say, you know, my mistake was I let this campaign go out with all these typos in it. That person isn't what you need in a startup. Typos are not the difference between your startup succeeding and failing, right? So yeah, so much of it, you're right, is down to how they answer it. As you know, because you help Joel and I, we're interviewing a bunch of people for head of marketing role right now um, and found someone I really liked. Admittedly, I liked that person slightly more than Joel. We, you know, gravitate more towards certain things. Um, but I, I, I thought he smashed the interview. Um, and then the presentation was brilliant. And you could just see, I felt, how hiring this person, he just knew what he was doing and had a lot of the relevant experience and the playbook and the answers. It was great. Um, and then we asked, give us some examples of feedback that you've received in the past. And literally nothing, not like he couldn't remember that he'd not had feedback or whatever, the it was maybe the only person I've come into contact with in a professional environment who couldn't get their head round at all the idea that they've ever received any. It was bizarre. It was like, no, I mean, I'm just really good at my job. It's never really happened. And we were just trying so hard. Give him an out or something. We really wanted, I mean, I really wanted to hire this guy. And at some point it just got embarrassing where I was basically trying to like answer his questions for him. I was like, you must have had some kind of feedback. Nothing. That's astounding. Ten, like maybe 15 years, like in loads of great brands and couldn't remember a moment anyone had given him feedback. So. Well, I, at least he didn't make it hard for you. Back to your humility <laughs> point wasn't quite the perfect fit on humility, which is actually one of our company values. And it was a big shame because everything else was perfect. But back to this point, you know, there's, there's two things in startups, right? There's, can you do the job? 
what are the right questions to find out? Can you do the job? Can you grow the startup? And then there's also, are you going to be a culture fit? And I think if feedback and humility is part of your culture, then sadly, you can't have one without the other. I, I think humility has to be part of your culture in an early stage startup. Because whatever you believe and whatever you told your investors, if you're not growing, you know, 50% month on month, you're wrong. Mm. And if you can't even acknowledge you're wrong, you're not going to figure out the right answer. Okay, so traditionally, startups that aren't growing, they're kind of dying one way or another. And it's a bit of a brutal way to look at it, but sort of the definition of a startup in many sort of ways is, you know, a, a growing thing. Otherwise, as soon as it flatlines and growth starts to stagnate, you're kind of screwed. Don't so, equivocate. You're exactly right. Right. Yeah. So if you're not growing, you're dying. And so you have experienced companies that have died and have failed. What causes startup failure? What causes startups to die? I mean, you've got an entire series of podcasts about failures. I don't need to tell you. There's a lot of reasons. It's sort of like, it's the first line in Anna Karenina, where it's like, happy families are all alike, but each unhappy family is different, right? Successful startups are all alike in this kind of fundamental way. And the failures fail for so many reasons. So just to because we don't have eight hours, I'm going to focus specifically on growth. And that piece, we're not going to talk about bad co-founder, getting rid of too much equity too early, like supply chain, cash flow, all the other reasons. Mm. But in growth, what I noticed were sort of three patterns of failure, and they all come back ultimately to the founder's personality. Because, you know, we listen to our podcasts and we do our Huberman protocols and all the stuff we're supposed to do. But then, you know, when we're stressed and when the chips are down, we, we tend to revert to type. And so... Type one are overthinkers. And these are people, you know, and it makes sense. I understand their point. Measure twice, cut once. You don't get too many bites at the apple. Let's consult people and think through a strategy and do the right thing, right? Figure it out. But the problem is all that debate and discussion comes at the expense of action. And there's no one you can ask who's going to know the right answer because you're doing something no one's ever done before. The next ones, I, I'd call them underthinkers. And these are people with a bias for action, which, again, in a startup is a good thing. But like you said, if you've got a list of 100 things, why not go do 100 things? Because the potential solution set to how your startup's going to grow is so vast, you just can't brute force it. So you've got to narrow down the list. There has to be some strategy. And so people who just build, ship, build, ship, build, ship, end up with this really complicated product that's hard to maintain and has very few customers. And the website says, you know, all in one, blah, 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 because they can't even describe what the product does. And then the third one is this sort of this hire and delegate. You know, a great leader knows their skills are limited and they want to hire the best people in each role and delegate to them. And those all sound like very sensible strategies. And in an established company that works, they are. Because you know how your company grows, you know what you're hiring for, you know what work you're delegating. But in a startup, you're in a race to figure things out before you run out of money. And if your goal is information acquisition, hiring and delegating is a very slow way to learn anything. Building and shipping products is a very slow way to learn anything. And sitting around and debating and discussing with experts is an incredibly slow way to learn anything. So what you want to do in a startup, if you want to learn as quickly as possible, is go back to this process of rapid experimentation, of understanding your growth model, of listening to your customers. So to summarize, all of the big mistakes around growth end up preferencing some form of procrastination over actually getting out there and doing validated learning as quickly as you can. So in your view, like to build a successful startup, does growth kind of go at the top of the whole pie? As in, obviously, you know, from a professional point of view, you're going to say yes. But like just strategically, 
based on the fact that a startup exists to grow and make money and happy customers and all of the other things that are like very broadly we understand to be somewhere around how to define the North Star metric, but you need money, you need customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't grow, you die. So is growth the single most important thing at a company? I mean, most failed startups have a product. Most failed startups have a team, a good team. The one thing that failed startups consistently don't have is growth. Mm. And do you believe that the the core to unlocking that then is uh, like a system, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I called my company system, so that kind of shows my bias. But it's a process and a mindset. Yeah, it's a process of gathering information and validating it quickly. And it's this mindset that I don't have all the answers, but I can figure them out. If you've got co-founders, it's probably quite nice to have the idea of balance, right? So at Heights, I would say Joel's the overthinker and I'm the underthinker. And you could maybe find examples where it's not always true. But broadly, I'd say that's fair, um, which is why I asked why you can't you do all 100 things at once, because, you know, only an underthinker would think that way. Uh, what are you? And I'm an overthinker. You're an overthinker. 100%. Yeah. Okay. And where do you find the balance between these things? Like, where does it sort of even out into, like, an actual practical picture? I do think some brilliant, talented people are both. I've seen them, but they're rare. So I think the first thing is to know, just as you said, to know yours and balance yourself out, surround yourself with people who have the countervailing bias. So my co-founder is an underthinker, and we call each other out on it all the time, and it keeps us on the straight and narrow. Ultimately, are you validating and learning stuff every week? If you're doing stuff and not learning from it, you're probably underthinking. And if you're not doing stuff, you're probably overthinking. If I was to type in startup growth onto YouTube, I'll get a lot of videos. If I type it into TikTok, I'll get even more. Um, It's easy to find insight and information from people about how to grow a startup. So I come back to that. There's a Derek Sivers quote, um, which is something along the lines of, if uh, more information was the answer, everyone would be a billionaire with six packs. So on that concept... We have the information about growth everywhere. Every startup founder can easily access this through podcast courses, whatever. ChatGPT. ChatGPT, right? Could be your own little growth assistant partner. Mm -hmm. So why aren't they actually doing the things? (laughs) And why are so many startups still dying even though the information's out there? You know, I wrestle with that question all the time. Like, think about the stuff that we, what have I said? What revolutionary secrets have I given away on this podcast? Track if you're delivering value to your customers. Find your you know, know your metrics, focus on the bottleneck, listen to your customers. Does any of this sound heretical? <laughs> like, this sounds like the most obvious stuff in the world, but people don't do it. And I think a lot about why, and I think ultimately, and this is going to sound cliche, so I'm going to drill into it, but it does come down to mindset. Now, everything we've done in our lives has conditioned us to want to be right and good. You get good grades in school, nice job, Danny. You get to go to a nice uni, nice job, Danny. You did your A-levels, whatever. You get a job in you know, consulting or banking or marketing, and you do all the things and make no mistakes. And, then, and that's what gets you ahead in your career. And none of us like to make mistakes, and none of us like to talk about them. And then you get into a startup, and the game is rigged against you. You don't know it's the, what the Kobayashi Maru problem. Like, there are no right answers in... People who aren't comfortable with that and people who aren't comfortable making mistakes and talking about them aren't going to be able to succeed because they're going to be trying to look at the numbers sideways and convince themselves it worked and come up with stories and bullshit themselves to a point where they're not learning. 
So there's this huge mindset shift from trying to do all the things perfectly to just trying to move quickly and figure things out. And, and people really struggle with that. And I think entrepreneurs, just purely by natural selection, tend to have that to some greater or lesser extent. They have humility, they know this thing or that thing. But getting that in a team is really hard because you've just hired someone, right? Because they did went to a good uni and they got good marks and they got promoted in their last job and they did or didn't get feedback in their last job. And now you want them to come in and screw up a bunch of stuff and make mistakes and talk about it. And they're not gonna wanna do that. So you have to create an environment where, as a leader, where that's okay. And so how do you do that? Well, first of all, you lead by example, right? As a leader, talk about your own mistakes. Um, talk openly about them, talk about what you learned. Second is, is how do you react when someone comes to you and tells you they made a mistake? Do you blow up and freak out and fire them? Or do you say, okay, what did you learn? <laughs> you know, what can we do? What are you gonna do differently next time, right? You don't fire someone because they made a mistake. You fire someone because they were a bad hire in the first place. If they're a bad hire in the first place, that's a different issue. But a lot of times good people make mistakes. So how do you handle that? And then I think the last thing is asking the, the right questions. So if I want people to focus on data and customers and experimentation, I'm asking people, what's the most important work we're doing right now? Which work should we focus on? Walk me through the math and help me understand why. What's something a customer told you that surprised you lately? What's the last you know, thing you heard from a customer that has changed how you think about the business? So ask questions where the right answer is, I don't know, let me figure it out, or is some kind of learning. And is part of that process then just a bit like the person has to come up with you with the structure of how they're going to ask the questions and the structure of how they're going to find it out? Is that sort of the key insight around that mindset? Well, I mean, in an interview, absolutely. I would hope by the time they're working for you, they've already got some kind of structure and process around that or you've given it to them, yeah. One of the challenges I've experienced at Heights running through your process is actually being in a regulated industry. And so you have a lot of the very classic stuff of you need to put the words on your website that your customers are using. And we're like, we would love to. However, we can literally not publish positive reviews that talk about any health benefits. I'm sure it's the same in finance and other regulated industries, but I don't know them. In health, the long list of the things you can't do are longer than the things you can. So how do you go around problem solving in those kind of situations? You, you need to do it. The good news, first of all, the good news is when you overcome that hurdle, it becomes a moat around your business when you can overcome that and do it well. So one example from TransferWise that Nilan, the, the head of growth there, told me about was, you know, onboarding someone to a fintech product requires all this KYC stuff and disclosures. And it was a horrible customer experience. So they actually focused the growth team on improving the onboarding and KYC process and got that to a point. In some countries, they were required to do it in person, they lobbied the government, got permission to do it online. Like, and once they were able to overcome that process, it then became a huge competitive differentiator for them. Like one, two, three, you're onboarded. We worked with a company called Stepladder that's also a FinTech product. And they have to make, it helps people save up enough for a down payment on their first home, like property ladder. And again, you know, the FCA or whoever made them disclose all these terrifying sounding things and give people a questionnaire. Do you realize you could lose all your money? And that became their growth team's main focus. And they spent months testing and optimizing every question, every step of that flow, so that they were remaining legally compliant, but getting people over that hurdle. Their business is growing very quickly. It's become profitable because they were able to do that. And that's now a huge differentiator for them. So 
you've got to do it, but then that, that becomes your rate limiting step, right? That's what your growth team has to apply their superpowers to. Okay. So I know you're obsessed with growth. I know that you think that the answer to everything in startup land is growth. Um, where does brand fit into this picture? Like, is there a limitation on where growth can really take you further? And at what point does brand need to step in? If you've got another hour, let's figure out what do you mean by brand? I knew you were going to ask me what I meant by that. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you can answer it if you want, but I think that that is the problem is people throw this word around and it mm. means all kinds of things. I suppose, I suppose brand is, um, is similar to uh, reputation, right? It's what other people say about you mm -hmm. or how other people describe what, what, you. What people say about you when you're not in the room. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when you talk about a product and they're not in the room, is it whatever you say about them, good, bad, or indifferent, is it because of the way their logo looks? Is it because of the adverts that they put on the side of a bus? <laughs> it's like our experience of products and services is what dictates what is a brand. And you can... As in customer experience. Like, yeah, our, your experience, the customer's experience of that product dictates the brand. Now, in the beginning, I think when people think about brand, it's like, I have a new product, new unknown product. Maybe it's like a, a high trust category like health mm. um, or financial services. And we need to win people's trust quickly. Now, that's a specific challenge. And when you get to the other side of it, everyone's like, oh, you have a brand. But doing a bunch of advertising is a really expensive, inefficient way to get to the other side of it. So ultimately, when you trust a company, you don't just generally think, oh, these are nice people. You know, I'd give them my money or my children or they let them babysit for me. You're trusting them to do or not do a very specific set of things. And so you need to understand, you know, like, what is it for your product that people are trusting you to do? So for your product, I don't know, what is it? It's like really high quality ingredients that have been scientifically validated that are actually going to work and make a difference for me in my life. Um, you know, if it's a bank, they're trusting them with completely different things. You're not going to get hacked or go out of business or, you know, be an evil big company and steal my money or whatever. So you've got to understand what are your customers' really specific exact anxieties and how can you address them just as those ideas, anxieties pop into people's heads? 2024, AI is obviously at the top of the stack of things that people are using in terms of useful tools. What are the actual practical tools that people are going to be using in growth teams or one-man bands, whatever it might be, your typical customer base? How are they going to grow their startups using AI tools? I don't have a great answer for like a list of off-the-shelf ad tech AI tools at this point, to be blunt. Um, How are you practically using it? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, talking about AI tools, you said something earlier, which is like, you know, if missing information were the problem, <laughs> then we'd all be, you know, we'd, there'd be 100 billion more successful startups. ChatGPT will give you information. What you do with it is completely up to you. You know, with my team, we have coaches, we work with companies. We help them find the right answers. They find the right answers. Most of the time, half the time, they still don't follow through. They still don't execute. So I think AI can only, giving you the right answer can only get you so far. The other piece of it is that it's just very quickly automating some tedious parts of the job. What I've seen from most, and that's excellent, um, you know, working through large data sets, testing stuff, automating, you know, repetitive tasks so you can move a little faster. Um, what I've seen of the actual work product of things like Midjourney or GPT-4, if you're looking at actual copywriting, there's no longer any excuse to be bad. 
So I think this can get you like to 70% good or 90% good. But you can still tell when a post is written by ChatGPT, right? You can still easily scrolling through any feed. Oh yeah, that's a mid-journey image. That's an AI created image, whatever. So there's, you know, but in social, in marketing, in any communication venue, in any startup, there's this 90-20 or really like 99-1. Like in all my LinkedIn posts last year, I think 80% of all my likes and follows and everything came from like the top 5% of posts. And those top 5%, that real genius right now so far is not coming from AI. Mm. So I still think to do really great work, you know, a skilled practitioner with some help from AI, but ultimately so far, at least for the next six months, you still need that human layer on top of it. Okay, so AI can only really help support growth, but it can't really do any magic for you just yet. Well, I think it can make you more efficient. I think it can absolutely raise the basement, like raise the floor up. But yeah, I still think right now the exceptions are exceptions. They're purple cows. They're, yeah. Typically speaking, growth channels in startups usually revolve around Meta and TikTok. Um, what else do we need to know about? What are some interesting actual practical channels that you've used with your audience? Yeah. So there's whatever there are, six channels, you know, BD and sales and cold email and meta and inbound and blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the examples in my book or any of these great examples, it often, it wasn't so much a specific channel. It, it was really the formula for how to do that. So it's like, of all, yeah, TikTok, sure. But what actually goes viral on TikTok? Is your audience on TikTok? What goes viral among your audience? What goes viral among a subset of your audience who will then subscribe and use your product? So, you know, it's a pretty easy sort of mathematical equation to figure out which channels you should be playing in. If you can avoid paid channels entirely, obviously mathematically that's better. But you know, 90% of that battle is then figuring out and validating, are my customers on there? You know, is anyone searching for the, you know, the question that you are the answer to? No, then AdWords isn't a channel. SEO isn't a channel for you. And then so much of it is then figuring out who are these people? How do I find them? What sort of content resonates with them? The people that it's bringing, are they qualified? Will they pay for my product? Will they remain loyal? So 90% of it's really just testing down into that stuff. And a lot of the, the great examples that we've talked about in these big unlocks aren't a specific channel. You know, they change their text in the app store and Forex downloads. What channel is that? It's not a channel. So I think that that sort of channel focus tends to blind people to a lot of the breadth of the opportunity. Right, because there's little moments along the customer journey and each one of them creates another unlock. And that's the thinking that you're trying to encourage people to have more of, right? Yes. So awesome. Thank you. I'm a new startup. I come to you and I say, Matt, give me two to three minute spiel on how I'm going to grow. What do you say? Like how you should approach growth? Do you have a product? Do I have a product yet? Um... Actually, I mean, um, let's assume most new startups are going to be building uh, AI-driven okay. B2B SaaS. So assuming you've got a product live with customers or it's in development, like what stage are you at? Great question. Really should have thought this one through. <laughs> um, let's, do you know what? How about we try and market your book? How are you going to market your book? That's a product. And it's actually quite an old school product, so probably quite, as in as an analog and everything else. So... Sell me this pen. All right. 
Well, do you want me to sell you the book or do you want me to buy? I just send it to you. Uh, yeah, true. Amazingly, yeah. you read it. This That's the extraordinary terrible part. business model that you hand deliver books. Uh, don't recommend that as a growth lever. But anyway, tell us how, let's use the book as an example. Because, okay. and I think what's nice about a book is it's old, it's analog, it's not shiny consumer, it's not B2B SaaS off the shelf. It's probably quite hard. Yeah. How do you sell it? So yeah, same rules apply. I mean, it's just me and my co-founder, we have one employee. And I'm running a business. So I'm looking for the 90-10 here. I don't want to do stuff that's not going to work. I'm not flying around the world and doing book tours and trying to get into bookstores. So who are my customers? They're entrepreneurs. So they're very time poor and they have specific questions they're trying to get answered. So I'm trying to do a handful of the highest impact things. So first is building my audience on LinkedIn and my subscribers and my email. And I do that by posting things that I know my readers care about so that they'll follow me. Um, the second piece of that is getting on podcasts because I know my customers, my audience listens to podcasts like yours. Um, they generally, because they can do it while they're multitasking, because they have ADHD and they can't sit down and read a book, et cetera. Um, so that's going to be a big piece of it. Um, some of them go to events, so I may end up speaking at some events and giving away books. But you know, the last place any of them is going to go is Waterstones or Barnes & Noble. So really, in terms of distributing a book, it's all about Amazon. It's got to be in an audiobook form too, because a lot of pod, or a lot of entrepreneurs would rather hear content than read it. But yeah, that's basically the, that's like the the ninety ten playbook for how I'm going to market my book. We'll see if it works. But what what about that is the ninety ten? As in, that's a bunch of tactics. Are you saying that you believe that one of those things is going to drive ninety percent of the growth? It's really just three tactics, right? It's build my own audience and sell it to them. Um, it's get on podcasts. And it's maybe speak at some events and give the book out at those events. Got it. Um, and the devil's in the details. Like, what conference am I speaking at? What am I talking about? What podcasts am I going on? What posts am I making on social media? How am I positioning it? Yeah. So coming back to the mindset point you were saying earlier, how much of this do you think then is... Um, yeah, Simon Sinek has a great phrase that I've really enjoyed trying to reframe my own positioning on everything around, which is the infinite game. Okay. So he talks about the people that can approach their products, their business, their content or whatever, like an infinite game. It doesn't really matter if this particular episode gets 100,000 downloads or whatever, if you stay in the market for long enough and you care for long enough because you're enjoying it and you're playing the infinite game. There's no end to this game. It's your life. If you take that approach, things will go exponential because most people just give up. Yes, startups fail, but people also give up. They give up their motivation, etc. Your own 90-10 thing here actually didn't sound like a bunch of quick wins at all. It sounded like a committed approach to being in the market, having a plan and, and staying power. So is that also sort of the, the sad non-hack of growth is just the willingness to turn up every day and keep at it? Broadly, it is. And, you know, with my business, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm on that kind of infinite game. Like, what kind of business do I want to build? Who do I want to spend my time with? And what kind of work do I want to be doing? Um, startup founders don't always end up in a position where they can play an infinite game just because of financial resources. But. Okay, so you mentioned North Star Metric. Sounds good. We've sort of discussed, you know, what they look like. But how do you actually find it? Now, how do you know that one is a North Star Metric and the other is not? So your North Star metric, first and foremost, is going to be a number that increments when you deliver value to customers. And, you know, if you can't specifically measure it, you can't measure if someone's sticking one of your pills in their mouth or not, then you want the closest proxy to that. 
Typically, in a consumer business, it's going to be people repeat purchases or you know, people continuing their subscriptions. In software business or an app, it could be daily, weekly, monthly active users, or it, whatever their natural behavior cadence is, or it could be some sort of amount of usage. Uh, you know, Amazon Web Services is probably like server cycles or amount of storage or something like that. Um, how do you decide if it's a number of users or the amount of usage? Typically, if the business is highly concentrated, if most of your revenue comes from a handful of whale customers, like online gaming, <laughs> then you're going to want an amount of usage because one person who walks into a casino could be worth a thousand times more than a different person. If your customers are all comparable value, like Heights or Meta, then uh, on Meta on the B2C side, on the consumer side, then you're going to want like a daily or monthly or weekly active users type thing. And if, if someone comes to me, I think this is my North Star, what do you think, Matt? The way I'll stress test this is I'm going to say, can this keep going up every year? Because some people will choose a ratio like, you know, return on ad spend or activation rate or retention rate. And that, you know, once it gets, or net promoter score, once that gets to whatever, 100%, it won't keep going up. But your business needs to. So I'm looking, is it an absolute number? Does it encompass the entire funnel? Is everyone in the company's work some way, primary or secondary, supporting this number? And then the third thing I'm going to do is just like a mental stress test of like, could this create perverse incentives? Can I think of a way, you know, I put on my naughty, you know, school kid hat. Can I think of a way to game this number where I hit it and the business actually doesn't grow mm. or not? So those are like the main stress tests I'll use to see if it's a good North Star. Fundamentally though, just the, sorry, the one qualification is if your business is immature, if you don't have product market fit, you don't really know how you're delivering value to customers. It's not fair to stick a pin in a North Star metric. So it can just be a hypothesis till we bottom this out. But if you have a mature growing business, then it's time to settle on a North Star. Sorry to interrupt. Right. And so you're saying that once you have it, at a certain point, once you have it, you should really stick to it. Are there exceptions to that rule? Like, should you change it at some point? Like, do you really imagine that Metas is the same now as it was then? Metas, I think it probably is. But... Um, I realize, as I said, are, it was a bad example because it almost definitely <laughs> will be. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a famous, I don't know if it's a legend or what, but Meta, you know, their North Star was always daily active users and TikTok was minutes of scrolling. Mm. And you, you know, you get the thing you incentivize. So if Meta gets everyone to log in and use the product for three minutes a day, like Duolingo, and TikTok becomes addictive and gets people to keep scrolling minute after minute, well, you see how that movie ends, right? So it shows that North Stars, even in huge companies, have incredible power. But back to your original question, um, when would you change it? If your business fundamentally changes. So when Amazon launched AWS, you know, then repeat purchases on our e-commerce site was no longer a sensible North Star. They have a different one for AWS. Or if you learn something fundamental about your business and your customers. So HubSpot, I think, was using daily or weekly active users, and then they changed it to weekly active teams. Because they figured out individuals who use the product have a high churn rate, and they're really only delivering value when they enable collaboration. So if you learn something fundamental about how you deliver value to customers, that's the other time that you can have permission to change your North Star. I mean, the late, great you know, business guru, Charlie Munger, said, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. Is that quite a good like parable, basically, for the North Star metric? I mean, that is literally the quote in the book that sets up the metrics chapter. <laughs> it's like... That's it. And because if I could elaborate a bit on that, if Please. you hire people, they're going to come in and they're going to want to do best practices at their job, right? Your compliance person will want to be 
perfectly compliant. Your salesperson will have sales targets, your product person is gonna have product targets, and your engineers are gonna want like no bugs and fast cycle times or whatever engineers care about. So everyone's pulling in slightly different directions. And with this North Star, you say, look, our mission, everyone in this company's job is to make sure that people are taking, are using our product and getting value from it every day. That's your job first and foremost. How does your work, compliance person, engineer, support that? And then they're gonna refactor how they think about their job and start to sort of balance the best practice metrics for their discipline with the business outcomes and the customer outcomes you're trying to achieve. So classic underthinker question, uh, question here. Um, I have 100 things I want to test this week. I'm excited about all of them, of course, because I only have one mindset, which is pure hope that they're all going <laughs> to work. Um, what framework can I actually go through to uh, take me you know, down to reality and start actually practically growing my business rather than getting overwhelmed by the 100 things and getting all excited and not taking action? <laughs> all right. Yeah, everyone, progress is deciding what not to do. So I think that was Jack Butcher said that. So the first cut on that list of 100 is which of these will affect your rate limiting step? Maybe 30. So that's like the first exclusion, right? Then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look through these and say, for each of these ideas, quick, back of the envelope, if this works, how big can it be? And if this works really well, it can only increase our business by 2%. Like It's off the list. So now only choose the things that could be big. Now, I didn't say effort and impact. I just said impact. Which of these things, if it works, can be really big? Still, you can only do a handful of them. So I'm looking at these and saying, which of these, given the resources we have, could we quickly execute this week? Which of these will we learn something useful, even if it fails? Is there a debate we've been having in our company for the last few months, and it feels like Groundhog's Day, and I just want to bottom this out? So I'm looking at which of these experiments can we learn from? And then I just try to write a hypothesis for each of them. And some of these I can't even come up with a clear hypothesis for. And it's like, well, you know, maybe my thinking's not that clear there. Or we'll never be able to measure that actually anyways. Or now that I write the hypothesis, I realize a better way to test that would be doing this other thing. So that's how I narrow down the list. But ultimately, if you're running this process well, you're running experiments every week. So if you don't run the experiment this week, you'll run it next week or you'll run it in week three. So don't spend too much time overthinking. You probably won't, but to your listeners, don't spend too much time overthinking exactly which experiments you run. Just get to testing. So there isn't necessarily like a framework on like ease versus speed versus like any of that stuff. It's more like resources and which ones feel right. I mean, people talk a lot about effort versus impact. Yeah, like oh, ice framework and stuff like that. Exactly. But then you end up with, you do all the ones that are like big impact, low effort, and then you end up with all these high effort ones. And it's like, well, we want to commit the resources and the hires and nine months. So take the ideas that are high effort, high impact, and do a minimum viable test. So don't do the whole thing. Just say, you know, okay, SEO. To do SEO well takes months to yes. build domain authority, years to do it well, hiring, you know, it's expensive, et, et cetera. But you can validate it pretty quickly. You can see if there's search volume for these terms. You can build a landing page and buy traffic to it and see if those people will convert and if they're good customers for you. So there's things you can do in a week to validate a big idea before you do it. So for those ideas, just do that minimum viable test. There's lots of different things that have been discussed here. What's important to me is sort of listeners being able to take away and understanding top to bottom, yeah, high to low. What are we doing? Like, how are we actually mapping out this process? So almost like the chapters in the book, right? So talk to us, the growth levers. How do we start? Where does it end? Where does the cycle repeat? Okay, so start with the premise. 
90% of your growth will come from 10% of the stuff you're going to try. So you've got to narrow down the list quickly. The first exclusion we talked about is map your growth model, find your rate limiting step, focus on areas that mathematically can have the biggest impact. The second thing is these growth levers, they're not in your head, but they're going to be in your customer's head somewhere. So go out, listen to your customers. We use a jobs to be done interview technique approach, but there's other ways. But find that locksmith moment. Where are they going to be when they suddenly realize they need you more than anything else, even if they don't know you exist? And you've got lots of ideas. Test them. Run growth sprints. Run three experiments a week. Test quickly. Most of these ideas are going to fail. But if you start with a clear hypothesis and design an experiment, the failures will make you smarter. They'll move you closer to success. But after that, it's kind of it's a journey of indeterminate length, right? It's not like you know, building muscle in the gym where you get, you know, 1% better every week. It's, it's really like nothing, 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 bang. So then the question is, are we even on the right track? Well, if you're learning, then you're making progress. Because ultimately, this is, you know, startup growth comes from revenue, and that comes from selling lots of products, and selling lots of product comes from learning. So the first step, if you're learning every week, you're on the right track. That's the number one leading indicator. Okay, got to ask because you mentioned it. Can you explain a bit more about the jobs to be done framework? <laughs> All right. So jobs to be done was originally popularized by Clayton Christensen in the innovator's dilemma. RIP. May he rest in peace. Um, but the idea was developed or co-developed by a guy named Bob Mesta, uh, who was originally an engineer in the auto industry. Um, and he's actually generously spent a lot of time with my co-founder and I helping us understand the theory and come to practice it. And it's basically, it's a simple mental reframe where you say, instead of people don't buy products or services, they hire them to help us make progress in our lives in a particular situation. So um, the key then, what you've got to do is forget your product and figure out what are the situations in which people tend to hire your product. You know, it doesn't matter if a locksmith uses picks or shims or replaces locks. None of that, no one cares, right? What's the situation? I come home and I can't get into my house. So you've got to understand, so you use this interview technique to figure out what are the situations in which people have the problems that you solve or are struggling to achieve the goals that you help people achieve. Most humble American I know. Thank you so much for joining me on Secret <laughs> Thank Leaders. You for having it's me been on a time. pleasure. It really Please, has. listeners, if you want to grow your startup, which if you don't want to die, I guess you should, please go check out Growth Levers by Matt Lerner, L E R N E R, on Amazon. Awesome. Fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. See you next time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.